Welcome to the Breathe Easy Pediatrics Podcast. I am your host, Ryan Thomas, a pediatric pulmonologist and Cystic Fibrosis Center Director at the Michigan State University College of Human Medicine. Today, I bring you a conversation with Dr. Lindsay Caverly and Dr. Robert Quinn on the microbiome in cystic fibrosis. This wide-ranging discussion begins with a conversation of the microbiome in the normal lung and then progresses to alterations in the microbiome in cystic fibrosis and the tools and techniques used in the discovery of these alterations. We cover how antibiotics and other chronic therapies of cystic fibrosis alter the microbiome in CF, as well as how the new CFTR modulators may be having an effect. We finished with a discussion of the potential benefits in getting a better understanding of the microbiome and areas for future research. I was really impressed not only with the width and depth of their knowledge on the topic, but their nearly encyclopedic recall of the literature in this area. I will be putting citations to the papers they reference in the notes of this podcast, so please don't drive off the road trying to write it all down. I really enjoyed the conversation, and I hope you enjoy listening to it. So, Dr. Quinn, how about introducing yourself and some of your work? Yeah, I'm uh, Robert Quinn. I'm an assistant professor in the Department of Biochemistry and Molecular Biology at Michigan State University. My lab studies cystic fibrosis lung microbiome, among some other systems, particularly interested in using new omics methods like metabolomics to understand these microbial communities. And Dr. Caverly, would you please introduce yourself to the audience? Hi, I'm Lindsay Caverly. I'm a pediatric pulmonologist at the University of Michigan, and I'm interested in clinical care of people with CF and also on the research side of things, CF lung microbiome and non-tuberculous mycobacteria. Well, thank you for both of you for joining us today. Yeah, thanks for having us. Yeah, thanks, Ryan. All right. So I'll start with my first questions for Dr. Quinn, and I just really want to start at the beginning. So when we talk about the pulmonary microbiome, what are we talking about? Well, to me, it's this consortium of microbes that live in your airway. And the definition of the airway is probably could be debated, but ultimately, you know, from outside the oral cavity all the way down to your alveoli and microbes that we detect there. But really, I think we're talking about microbes that are living in that niche or that environment of that continuum of the airway. Dr. Caverly, what do we know about the microbiome in a normal lung? Well, the traditional view of the normal lung is that it's a sterile site, but we've learned in, in recent decades that this isn't the case, that carefully controlled studies where people do bronchoalveolar lavage with, with good control of possible contamination from the scope or from the reagents or from the BAL fluid have shown that there, are, there, there is a microbiome of the normal lung. You can detect bacteria in the lower airways of healthy people through bronchoalveolar lavage sampling and that these bacteria are, they're, they're viable. You can detect them both with bacterial culture and then also with DNA sequencing. They're metabolically active. You can detect the metabolites in the lower airways. And most of these, most of these bacteria are similar to what you find in the mouth. So bacteria can enter the normal lung both through inhalation and then also through aspiration of secretions or aspiration of gastroesophageal reflux. It's important to know this is very different than what people generally think about of a microbiome, such as the gut, right, which is 10 to the 9, 10 to the 10 cells per gram. If the gut's maybe the rainforest, the, the lung is like the desert, right? There's very, very few bacteria really living there. 
we can detect them. We're very good at detecting them, but it's certainly a very different system than you think about the gut microbiome, which is generally what people talk about when they use that word. And, and are these sort of benign residents or do they, do they interact at all with the host? Invariably, they will interact with the host because our host and our epithelium is designed to detect and identify, well, not identify, but detect microbes. Um, but I think that's really sort of up for debate, and it may very well depend where you are in that continuum of the lung. We know that the upper and lower airway have different cellular constituents and, and likely encounter microbes differently. You know, the lung really is this branching tree, right? So if, like Lindsay said, most of the source of the microbes, we believe, is the oral cavity. And as I'm talking to you, I'm disgustingly spitting microbes all over my computer, breathing microbes back into my lung from my oral cavity. And because of the, the physical nature of the lung and its branching characteristic, the microbes hit the walls of our airway and they can only get so far. So you can see a real continuum and a decrease in the abundance and likely diversity, at least in a healthy airway, of microbes from the upper airway to the lower airway. So it probably depends where you are what part of the lung you're talking about. And I think, in the, I think in the healthy lung, the question of if these are resident versus transient microbiota, I think isn't totally clear. You know, the normal lung host defense and mucociliary clearance is always acting to clear out any, any microbes that are either inhaled or aspirated. So I think that question is still a little bit up for debate. I don't know, Rob, if you have anything to add to that. Yeah, I think it's very, and probably will be for a long time, because like I said, we're very good at detecting bacteria, right? Like the word sterile is like a swear word in microbiology. You say that, you're almost inherently wrong. But particularly, we can get into the methods probably later on, but there's kind of two approaches, conventional methods to survey bacteria, that'd be by culture and then by DNA detection. We can detect bacterial DNA in extremely low amounts, and it also doesn't say much about whether the bacteria are alive. Lindsay mentioned that we can detect their metabolites. But even culture-based methods, it can be difficult to determine whether a microbe is a contaminant from something you're using in your experiment or actually a, a resident of the airway. Well, that's some pretty interesting stuff. And I think it's a problem we're running into now with COVID, where sometimes you can see that COVID was there, but whether or not it's functional, you know, sometimes these assays can be a little bit limiting in, in what they allow us to learn. So with that, I kind of want to transition now to the more core focus of the podcast, how does the microbiome in the CF lung, CF airways, differ from that of the normal lung? The lung microbiome in CF differs from healthy kids starting very early on in infancy, within the first few months of life. There has been some very nice work from the group at University of North Carolina and from the Australians as part of the Arrestia studies that have looked at BAL sampling of young infants with CF and healthy controls. And these things differ beginning in the first months of life. And they differ both in terms of bacterial load. Uh, Dr. Quinn mentioned earlier that the biomass is very, very much elevated in people with CF compared to healthy people. And this, this starts early on also. The total bacterial load in the lungs of people with CF, that is elevated starting from infancy. And the members of the microbiome differ in people with CF. We're familiar with the traditional CF pathogens, people with CF having higher prevalence and relative abundances of things like Pseudomonas or Burkholderia, um, methicillin resistance Staph aureus. And, and these differences start in very early life in CF. And there are also some differences in terms of the other, the non-traditional CF pathogens. Some of the oral anaerobes and some of the other taxa and the diversity metrics do differ in people with CF starting in infancy. Yeah, I think from a microbial ecology perspective, which is generally where I come from, is more my background. 
the biggest difference we see between a healthy airway microbiome and a CF microbiome, this is not true for everyone, is the presence of a major opportunistic pathogen, at least later in life. Uh, as I mentioned, we're constantly inhaling microbes from our oral cavity, and you generally see similar bacteria in the CF lungs as you do in the oral cavity, but not all of them. There seems to be an enrichment of particular types of microbes from the oral cavity, Vianella, Prevotella, Fusobacterium, some of these oral bugs. Others we don't necessarily see that are in our oral cavity. We don't generally pick up in CF lung secretion. But again, to me, the biggest difference is the presence of one, two, or perhaps even three opportunistic pathogens. If I can add to that too, the, the, the inflammatory environment differs starting in infancy too, that infants with CF have elevated levels of neutrophilolastase and some of the other inflammatory markers that makes the whole microbiome and, and the environment of the lower airways differ from healthy infants early on. So one of the things you mentioned was you get this sort of major opportunistic pathogen, especially later in life. Is, the microbiome sort of evolves over a lifespan. Is that correct? And, and how does it do that? We know quite a bit about that in cystic fibrosis, I'm assuming. Yeah. Mm-hmm. You mean. yeah. We see very much a transition over decades for most people. We're talking about you know, young patients all the way to adulthood the takeover by these opportunistic pathogens. Labs at University of Michigan have shown this a number of times, as well as really many people that study the microbiome and CF see that as patients age, lung functions decline, the microbiome gets kind of taken over by these pathogens, particularly Pseudomonas aeruginosa and some others. And there's, there's a lot of variability within patients, but on the population level, the Diversity of the lung microbiome in people's CF decreases over time. Generally, infants, young kids, um, early adolescents have very diverse microbiomes. And then that starts to decrease over adolescence and early adulthood as the, as the relative abundance of these CF pathogens like Pseudomonas increase. And by the time you get to adulthood, most adults with end-stage lung disease have lung microbiomes that are, that are dominated by their CF pathogens. So if you have Pseudomonas in culture, you tend to have very high levels of Pseudomonas relative abundance and a very, a very low diversity microbiome. The decreases in diversity and increases in the relative abundance of the CF pathogens, it kind of goes in parallel with the decreases in lung function that you see in people with CF over time. And so I think some of the, some of the which came first, the chicken or the egg question isn't totally worked out with this. What are the drivers of a decrease in diversity? Does that drive the lung function decrease? Is it, is it reflective of the decrease in lung function? Are, are some interesting questions that still have to be answered? Yeah, we actually recently published a paper where we actually captured a CF patient that passed away, collecting mucus samples from the patient within days of the final days of life. And you can really see that, that transition, even over the last about 200 days of that person's life, from a relative abundance, which is an important word, of Pseudomonas from about 90% to 99.9% final days of life, indicating almost a pure culture, at least in the samples that we had of of Pseudomonas aeruginosa at end-stage disease. And then I think it's also important to note that there is some variability in in these general changes over time that occur. Some people with CF don't have severe decreases in lung function over adolescence and maintain pretty good lung function through adulthood. And these people also tend to maintain diverse lung microbiomes as well, and they still have the diversity, they still have the high relative abundances of the anaerobes, and they don't have this takeover by the dominant CF pathogen. So there is some variability that tends to track with lung function decline and with lung disease aggressiveness. Yeah, I think that's one of the biggest questions in the entire field. As a single CF patient presents to a physician, 
what will the outcome of this person's infection be? We just don't know what drives really the variability that we see between people for the most part. Yeah, I mean, that's really interesting. And I think it sort of underlies the clinical relevance of the work you guys are doing, where you see how some of these microbiome changes can parallel clinically important factors. You mentioned anaerobes. Dr. Quinn, I know this is an area of interest of yours. You know, what do we know about the role some of these anaerobes play in CF? We're learning more. I think, you know, in the last 20 years or so, just considering that they had a role was kind of a new idea. We see that they are able to produce particular metabolites in sputum. Dr. Hunter's lab, Ryan Hunter at University of Minnesota, has shown how they seem to be able to feed pseudomonas particular metabolites. So there really is this kind of ecological connection there, not all that different from environments you think of in, in nature where one organism kind of feeds another and there's these connections in that way. But we don't know a lot. I mean, kind of like I mentioned, we, we see some common players that are involved and it does seem that they're developing a niche in that particularly mucus-filled airway. But we're really just learning what their role is. Maybe Lindsay can comment more on that. I think there's some interesting contrast in the potential roles that anaerobes play in CF. Uh, on the one hand, as we talked about earlier, the decrease in anaerobes track with the decrease in lung function. And so you could think of it as anaerobes are protective and anaerobes are, are a marker of, of a healthier lung microbiome. People with CF who, as I said earlier, maintain better lung function tend to maintain their higher relative abundances of anaerobes. But there's also been work on the other side of things that potentially anaerobes are linked to pulmonary exacerbations. And Dr. Quinn has done, has done some of this work as well. Studies where the increase in relative abundances of anaerobes or specific anaerobes has been tied to the onset of a pulmonary exacerbation. So I think probably a lot of this depends on the individual patient, on the particular anaerobic species, and maybe on the whole environment. But there are some interesting contrasts in terms of anaerobes potentially playing a protective role and some, potentially in some situations playing a pathogenic role. Yeah, it's a really kind of counterintuitive idea, right? That it's quite clear that as patients age and lung function declines, we detect less anaerobes in their microbiome profiles. But at the same time, on a more acute or short-term perspective, we see these kind of blooms of anaerobes or changes in the abundance of anaerobes, particularly prior to exacerbation. And what they, I think is becoming more and more clear is the effect that the antibiotics have on anaerobes. Other papers from some from my lab and recent one on tobermycin shows that a lot of the drugs that patients are taking, particularly antibiotics, seem to affect the abundance of the anaerobes, which is not necessarily what physicians are generally trying to do. One other thing to add about the anaerobes in CF is that some of the studies of infants with CF with the BAL sampling, um, there's one study from the group at University of North Carolina where the increase in anaerobes occurred prior to the increase in CF pathogens and, and was linked to an increase in inflammation. So babies basically went from what seemed to be a sterile, in quotes, microbiome to one more dominated with anaerobes and also an increase in inflammation. And then the CF pathogens came later. So I think there also is a hint that even early in life, anaerobes could be linked to some, to some inflammation in the lung. It, it even makes me think of kind of that contrast again with the gut. We know that a lot of these anaerobes perform a type of metabolism called fermentation, and they produce small short-chain acids and things like that. These short-chain fatty acids in the gut are generally considered very good for you, particularly butyrate is supposed to support epithelial health, but we see strong responses, inflammatory responses to those same compounds in the lung. So it's a very different 
system in that way. And you know, the idea that anaerobes are associated with better lung function, we still believe that they're not really, you don't want a high load of really any bacterial organisms in your airway. That provides a nice transition point. So I think what you guys were sort of talking about is how, you know, IV antibiotic therapy, stuff like that might change the community very quickly within the airways. How about, you know, some of the chronic therapies we use in CF and the impact they might have on the, on the microbiome, I think? Dr. Caverly, you've done some work on that? Yeah, we, we published a study recently where we looked at six adults with CF who had daily sputum sampling. They did home-based sampling with the samples and frozen and shipped to the lab. And we looked at samples that were collected during periods of, of clinical stability where they had stable symptoms, they weren't taking antibiotics for pulmonary exacerbation. And we looked at changes in the microbiome with these daily sputum samples when they changed their maintenance antibiotics, so either starting or stopping or azithromycin, or switching from an inhaled antibiotic. And we did see shifts in the microbiome associated with all the changes in these what we call maintenance antibiotics. So if you started a Toby month, your, your microbiome tended to shift coincident with that Toby month. And other labs have shown this as well. There was a, a recent paper from the group at University of Washington that looked at the response of starting inhaled tobermycin and also showed that there were shifts across the, across the first month of the inhaled tobermycin. As Dr. Quinn mentioned earlier, many of these shifts were in some of these, these off-target bacteria. So, so it wasn't just the pseudomonas that changed. It was the relative abundances of some of these anaerobes, and, and they did this with culture-based methods also. There were shifts in the microbiome coincident with the inhaled antibiotic administration. That may not sound surprising, right? I mean, antibiotics kill bacteria. But there's been a lot of debate about this. Some of the early studies have shown that the antibiotics, the microbial community doesn't seem to change much at all. The more we look, the more we see that they change drastically. And again, it may depend on the person. Some people don't change much at all. Others, we see big swings in the dynamics of their community when they take antibiotics. But then we can't also treat all antibiotics the same. As we know, they're very different chemicals, very different molecules designed to target different microorganisms. But that simple question of what do antibiotics do to the lung microbiome seems to not be answered yet. And it's been hotly debated whether it does much at all but we're seeing here in Michigan that there are some major changes. And there probably isn't a universal antibiotics change to this degree that, that applies to all patients because a lot of it depends on your, on your lung disease stage and what your microbiome looks like. If you already have 99.9% of pseudomonas, you're, you're not going to have a change with antibiotics. But you have a very diverse community with more room to move and more bacterial members that potentially could be affected by the antibiotics and you're probably going to have a greater movement with antibiotics. That makes sense, at least intuitively to me. You know, we know how IV antibiotics correlate with preservation of lung function in the CF community. And so that's a very sort of macro look at this, but getting a better micro understanding of why exactly that is, I think is a really, really important thing to do moving forward. I was hoping to sort of transition now. So we're, we've talked a little bit about cultures and some of the other ways of sort of looking at the pulmonary microbiome, but I was hoping you know, we'll start with you, Dr. Quinn. You know, what are some of the tools we're currently using to get a better understanding of the microbiome in CF? Well, there's two methods from sort of a microbiology perspective, culture-dependent and culture-independent. Culture-dependent has been the historic way that it's been done since probably like the 1920s, where we take a sample from a person's lung or, or upper airway, maybe a throat swab, and then we basically plate on uh, an agar dish to grow bacteria and identify them and then maybe screen which antibiotics they're resistant to to help with treatment decisions. 
the other approach is then this culture independent method, which is microbiome, really the word that we use for that. I'm not sure how much detail you want to get into, but there's different approaches for that as well. We can sequence marker genes that are kind of phylogenetic signatures of which bacteria is which and how much of particular microbes are there. Then there's another approach called shotgun metagenomics, where we really just grab all the bacterial microbial DNA we can and sequence all of it and put it all back together. So those are kind of the, the microbiome methods and the microbiology methods, but we're also transitioning, I know Lindsay's group's doing some of this as well, into other omics methods like metabolomics. I know some people work on proteomics. So we can get output and signatures and identify behavior of bacteria beyond just who the bacteria are using different methods. One is mass spectrometry and other approaches like that. These are all ways of getting a picture of what the microbiome is and what it might be doing in a particular time in the sample. So I think that's, that's really interesting. For those of us who maybe don't know a lot about metagenomics and sort of these non-culture-based systems, what are some of the strengths and weaknesses a clinician might want to know about when reading this paper and trying to you know, understand how the field's moving forward? maybe someone who hasn't done much work with this. Sure. I think the most important thing to know is that you're looking at different levels of the central dogma, right? That we've all probably had that cell biology figure ingrained in our head, DNA, RNA, protein, and then we can add metabolites. So these different omics are really analyzing different levels of that cascade of cell biology, right? Now, with that in mind, make sure you know what you're looking at. So the DNA, for example, is this kind of static information and that information doesn't necessarily change much in a cell. So that's the information you get. RNA is a valuable thing to read out as well. Then you're looking at the gene expression. You can say what the microorganisms or the host as well are doing in a particular sample. And then the protein is sort of the active enzymes and proteins. So these are really all these different layers of omics. And finally, the metabolites are the output or even processes of metabolism going on in the bacterial and human cells. They all have their challenges, they all have their benefits. CF provides some particularly unique challenges for a lot of these omics levels, one being the DNA. One of the problems with cystic fibrosis for metagenomics is the massive amount of human DNA in the samples. And there's a very particular reason for that, primarily from neutrophils. So we, my lab generally uses a combination of 16S, metagenomics if we can, and we do, and metabolomics, which is sort of the beginning and the end of that central dogma. I'd say for, for people thinking about designing a study of the CF microbiome, the important things to keep in mind are, are just as Dr. Quinn said, that all of the methods have, have their strengths and they all have their limitations. And a lot of it comes down to what is the question that you're trying to address and what is the sample type that you're going to have available. And, and then also what are the storage conditions going to be for your sample? Are you able to store it in, in certain preservatives like RNA later? Are you going to have controlled temperatures? Because some of these assays like metabolomics do have some, some temperature sensitivity. So there's, there's no, this is the right way to do things. It's really dependent on what your study design is going to be and what questions you're trying to address. So it sounds like the ability to preserve and secure the sample might be one of the big barriers to this kind of work is some of the samples need to be fresh versus frozen. Is there anything else that sort of acts as a barrier to doing this sort of work? It's just that, really. It's what sample type am I getting and how do I need to store it to preserve the data I'm trying to obtain? And it really depends on what you're looking at, DNA, RNA, protein, metabolites, even some other omics. For example, metabolomics 
can work great on a fresh sample. So if you just give me a fresh sputum sample, we can run it on metabolomics and detect all kinds of metabolites. A frozen sample works great, but as soon as you put it in something like RNA later, it's very difficult because RNA later contains a lot of salts and they can really screw up mass spectrometry. So you need to know what methods you're going to use to make a decision about what data you want to generate. Our approach and the reality of all of this is that we're asking people to provide us samples when they can or in the clinic. And there's some challenges there that I'm sure Lindsay could probably describe better than me, but we need to know what the patients are going to be willing to provide. And if that's the most readily available sample, we may have to adjust our approach around that at times as well. The sampling type is important as well. The um, oral pharyngeal swab is, is more easily obtained in some ways in people that, that can't expectorate sputum, but we know that the OP swab samples have a different microbiome profile than the sputum samples do. So having a consistent sample type if you're doing longitudinal sampling can be a challenge, especially as we've seen people decrease their sputum production as they start highly effective CFTR modulators. So, so picking your sample type and deciding on a sample that can give you a steady sample type over time is important because it does get very difficult to mix and match sample types within a subject. And there's surprises along the way. So oropharyngeal swabs, for example, for metabolomics are plagued by glue. So the actual cotton that's bound to the swab is generally used with some kind of glue. And in metabolomics, we need to use solvents that kind of extract the metabolites. And they're very, very good at extracting glue. Some of the first samples we ran of oropharyngeal swabs were just basically useless because all we detected was polymers and the, what we think is from the glue. Do you have ways around that? Yeah, don't use plastic swabs. We have a, an approach now where we use a wooden swab. And for whatever reason, it doesn't have wrong kind of glue or even the plastic from the swab itself will kind of dissolve in the solvents. But the reality is that metabolomics is, is challenging in a different way than some of the other omics because there's no amplification step. So you kind of get what you get, right? If you have a very low amount of biomass on a sample, you're not going to pick up many metabolites from it. It's been a challenging in a different way than some of the other omics approaches. Well, and one, one of the other things, I think maybe this came from one of your papers, Dr. Cavalier, is that the granularity of this sampling matters is that some of these patients will have sort of like outlier samples. And if you're not testing them enough, you're going to miss that and you'll make a big misassumption about how their microbiome is changing with time. I don't know if you could speak more to that. Sure. This, this was the same study I mentioned earlier where we sampled daily sputum samples from adults with CF at, at, their, at their baseline clinical state. And one of the questions we had with this study was how many, how many samples do you need to obtain from someone if you want to look at changes between someone's baseline and their pulmonary exacerbation, can you just pick one sample from baseline and one sample from exacerbation and be confident that that one sample that you selected is representative of what their microbiome was at baseline over the broader period of time? And in this study, there was some variation in the baseline sample. So people do have some change in their microbiome over time, even when they're clinically well. And we determined this by comparing samples within patients to, to some of the technical controls. So we we repeat sequence things. We ran some muck communities on, on multiple plates with the um, 16S RNA gene sequencing. And there was more variation within a patient than there was with these technical controls. The majority of samples were fairly similar. So we know that people with CF, their microbiomes are more similar within patient than between patients. So even across changes in clinical state or antibiotics or exacerbation, as we've talked about, people do stay more similar to themselves than they do to other patients. But even within a patient, there, there were some samples that were 
that were just very different from the rest of the communities. So it was a small percentage. The majority of samples from people at baseline were, were similar to their other baseline samples. But you do run the risk if you're using one sample to represent their baseline period that that sample is one of these outlier samples. And, and we don't know exactly why some of these samples were outliers, whether that was a sample that either had more saliva in it or was a sample maybe from a different lobe of the lung than they typically expectorated from. We couldn't explain with this study why that occurred, but it does provide support for the need to take multiple samples from someone to be sure that you really have a good representation of the microbiome at that particular period of time. Yeah, I think that sort of circles back to one of the things Dr. Quinn mentioned in the beginning in that the microbiome changes as you work through the airways and the lungs. And some of these sputum samples are coming from almost one region. And we know that the right upper lobe and most CF patients can be a lot sicker than other parts of the lung. And maybe where you're sampling from makes a big difference in what the community looks like. Uh, one of the things, Dr. Quinn, you'd worked with was the uh, WinCF system. And so I just wanted to make sure we took a moment to talk about sort of what that is and what the potential benefits it has in sort of understanding the CF microbiome better. Yeah, it kind of exemplifies the approach that I've taken in a number in the field to understanding this clinical problem is from microbial ecology approach, right? That people that study bacteria in the environment and soil and the ocean have done a fantastic job in developing methods and approaches and even models to understand how do microbial communities interact in these complex systems. So when I began my work on CF, my PhD was actually on lobsters. So I was studying bacteria that affect lobsters in the ocean. So I a pretty big transition. And maybe that kind of reflected that background was that, you know, if you think about what is a CF bronchiole or a, a plugged airway tube with mucus, you know, how does that set up from a microbiology perspective? And I mean, we know a lot just from kind of first principles of bacterial physiology that they primarily draw down oxygen. They, if there's oxygen around, they will respire it. And then they transition to other metabolic approaches when the oxygen is gone. It's a long story, but it basically made me think about how the CF lung and these mucus plugged airways may not be all that different than these microbial ecology systems like soil that I learned about in my graduate's trainings. And the Winogradsky name, the WinCF system, comes from Sergei Winogradsky, who was the father of microbial ecology in like the late 1890s, a Russian scientist who basically took sediment from a lake and put it in a glass tube up to a window, was studying the stratification and physiology of microbial communities in sediment. We think that the CF lung may not be all that different. And if you can imagine the tube in this case being the thin plugged bronchiole, that the physiology and the behavior and the interactions of the community in this clinical context in this terrible disease is not necessarily all that different from what we think about in the environment. We're actually able to show that that's true. The community does stratify in chemical gradients such as oxygen and pH. You can completely change the community structure if you change the pH of the system one unit. So that's sort of what the WinCF system is all about. Really, it's about a microbial ecology approach to this complex community and studying it from kind of a, a top-down view. That's pretty interesting, and, and maybe it helps us understand things a little bit better. I do know that the you know, CF airways tend to have low partial pressures of oxygen, and CFTRs involved in the bicarbonate mechanism, and so some of these things like pH and other factors may play a big role in, in what the microbiome's doing down there. Diane Newman's lab at Caltech has shown that there's hydrogen sulfide production in CF sputum. So 
so that's certainly not something people would think about generally in a clinical context. Uh, we do see some of the same physiological metabolic behaviors in soil and sediment communities that we do in the, in the lung. So, Dr. Caverly, I think one of the big things that we're going to have to try and figure out moving forward is how do these CFTR modulators potentially interact with the microbiome? And I'm just sort of wondering, is there any information or data out there that has started to investigate that? This is going to be a really interesting area going forward, and we have, we have a lot to learn in this area. The majority of what we know about modulators affecting the microbiome come from our experience with Ivacaftor, as, as this is the modulator that has been around for the longest. And a lot of this comes from the G551D observational study, or the GOAL study. And so there's a couple different studies that give us some insight into this. Some of the registry-based studies of people that were on Ivacaftor did show that after the first year of Ivacaftor use, there were decreased prevalence rates of, of Pseudomonas and Aspergillus, and staph has been shown to have decreased prevalence rates in a different study as well. Um, and these are, these are clinical-based data. These are culture-based data from people with their, with their clinical sputum or OP cultures. Of the people that start Ivacaftor and have chronic infection already, most don't clear that infection, but there is a small percentage that do. So in one of the, one of the goal study papers, about a third of the people who had pseudomonas at the onset of Ivacaftor use did clear their pseudomonas infection over that first year. But the people that tend to clear their prior chronic infections tended to have better lung function and tended to have, have less consistent positive culture. So if you had intermittent pseudomonas infection, you're more likely to clear it with ibuprofen use than if you had persistent chronic pseudomonas infection. So there is some hint that modulators are going to decrease the prevalence rates of some of the CF pathogens and also will help some people clear their chronic infections. There was also a study from the University of Iowa that showed that people on modulators had a decreased rate of acquisition of CF pathogens, and this study looked at a composite endpoint of both Pseudomonas, MSSA, and MRSA, and did show a positive effect of modulators towards reducing CF pathogen acquisition. I think from the, from the culture-independent standpoint, I think things have been a little bit less encouraging in terms of the modulators changing the microbiome. There were a couple studies, again, experienced with Ivacaftor, where, where there were some trends towards decreases in relative abundance of pseudomonas and the other CF pathogens and some increase in diversity and increase in some of the anaerobes that, that we consider associated with better lung function. But there also has been some data to the contrary that maybe modulators aren't going to have as much of an effect on the, on the microbiome. There was a study particularly out of the University of Washington of 12 adults who had pseudomonas infection and that followed them over the first several years of ibuprofen use. And they used both bacterial culture um, and culture-independent techniques. And the really interesting part of this study was that there was a marked decrease in the pseudomonas load within the first week of ibuprofen use. And so these patients had a 60-fold decrease in pseudomonas load within the first week of ibuprofen use. And this decrease maintained over the first seven months or so of ibuprofen treatment, but then it rebounded. And by the first year, these patients were back to where they were at the beginning of their ibuprofen start time in terms of their pseudomonas. And none of these patients cleared pseudomonas, and they all, they all maintain the same strain of pseudomonas over time. So there's a lot that we need to learn still. I think that the data is encouraging that people who have better lung function and don't have chronic infection are going to have more of a benefit from the modulators in terms of their microbiome. But there's a lot we need to learn, especially in terms of the new modulators, like the triple modulator, and what this looks like over time, and, and what this looks like in terms of people who start modulators earlier and maintain better lung function over time. So 
as we're sort of heading towards wrapping this up, I guess the next thing I am curious about is what, what do you guys see as being the major benefits of learning more about the microbiome in CF moving forward? What are the areas where you think it can have a big clinical benefit to us? I think Lindsay kind of just touched on it. We talk about having an improvement in the microbiome, but what does that even look like? We're not totally sure what we're striving for, right? To me, it's certainly probably striving for reduction in bacterial load, getting rid of bacteria in general. But there's many patients that seem to live for decades with high abundance of pseudomonas in their lung and uh, seem to live quite a long time where we generally associate more pseudomonas with lung function decline. That seems to be true. But again, like I said, there's lots of people who can live with pseudomonas for, for years. So I think the question is what profile, what microbiome do we want to achieve? And can antibiotics drive that? A lot of the experiments are doing in our lab is just that, like what do the antibiotics do to the lung microbiome? Kind of an experimental context. I think that's kind of the major question. And if we could figure out what a healthy lung microbiome looks like, we can try to maintain it. Going along with that, for me, the most exciting area is how can we use knowledge of the lung microbiome to better direct our CF therapies. So the current antibiotic approach in CF has resulted in a huge increase in lung function and lifespan for people with CF and has been very effective. But how can we take this even further? We know that our, our typical approach for treating pulmonary exacerbations results in recovery of lung function in the majority of cases, but, but not all of the cases. And are there ways that we can improve our antibiotic approach to improve outcomes for exacerbations and also our, our chronic management of infections in CF? How can we adjust our approach to, to improve outcomes and also reduce some of the toxicities and some of the, some of the burdens of treatment that go with our current antibiotic regimens? I think the, the approach that we use in, the, in, in clinics right now with the selective culture of airway samples to look for these known CF pathogens, I think potentially could be expanded with some of this work. So in the setting of an exacerbation, is, is there something besides one of the typical CF pathogens that we should be looking for and targeting in treatment? And this almost definitely varies between patients and probably varies within a patient over time. But how can our, how can our diagnostic techniques improve to improve treatment and, and improve outcomes in people with CF? Well, in our current clinical approach, right, is a little bit biased towards aerobic organisms because that's what we can grow on a plate. And and I do remember reading somewhere in my preparation for this that during some exacerbations where there's pseudomonas-dominated community, the actual relative and absolute abundance of pseudomonas will sometimes decrease with an exacerbation, which suggests that there is something else that's playing a role in it. We just don't know what it is yet. Yeah, that's what we see in a lot of our studies. Sometimes, about majority of the time, a decrease in the abundance of pseudomonas at exacerbation. And that corresponds to an increase in the relative abundance of anaerobes. Right. So that, I mean, at least for me, that, that's a little counterintuitive. But I think that's a real area of importance moving forward. And then I think I saw patients with higher relative abundances of certain species like staph or Prevotella might respond differently to inhaled estrionam. Am I, am I getting that right? <laughs> Sorry, I'm drawing a blank on whose study this was. But it's one of the studies of, of, the, of the inhaled antibiotics and the effect on the microbiome. And there were some of these off-target effects that were predictors of the clinical response to the inhaled antibiotics. And I believe this was on inhaled as triamnim. So potentially, some of the members of the microbiome could be used as predictors of who's going to respond to a treatment or not. Yeah, there's some really unexpected findings, too. We've been doing a lot of experiments in our little WinCF system here 
with different antibiotics, we've even seen cases where the total bacterial load of the community increases in the presence of an antibiotic compared to a control. So they're really, it's not necessarily surprising that we don't understand this all that well, because we're approaching it with this idea that if we provide an antibiotic against this bacterium, that bacterium will die or will decrease. But then there's all this interconnectedness of the community and these kind of unexpected consequences of antibiotic therapy that we see in the lab and we think probably explain a lot of our poor understanding of what happens in people. So, you know, a real goal, get back to your first question, is to kind of take out, take away or reduce the guesswork involved in antibiotic therapy for CF. So, I mean, we've touched on a couple of these things, but other than what we've mentioned, is there any important or exciting areas of future research that we haven't touched on yet? I think what's exciting for me is the idea that cystic fibrosis lung microbiome might be a great model system for microbiomes in general, right? And that what we're learning now, the discussions we just had, we may be far ahead of the understanding of antibiotic treatment in other systems, such as the gut. The thing about the CF lung microbiome that's sort of different than other of our microbiomes, it's actually quite reduced diversity compared to things like the gut or even your skin. You know, there's only so many microbes that we find in this community, and much of them we can culture. We know a lot about them. We have genome sequences for pretty much every member that we've found, which is not the case in other systems. So we may be able to learn about the lung microbiome and the CF, which has a very kind of particular application in this clinical context. But what we learn can expand to a lot of other systems and even just microbial communities in general. I think I'm most excited about the changes in the microbiome with the modulators and how this is going to play out over the upcoming years and how this is going to change our, our understanding of the CF lung microbiome and our, and our approach to treating and CF infections. Well, and it seems to me there's going to be a little bit of a race to figure that out because it's not going to be too many years from now before pretty much everyone's on a modulator starting at a young age. And so if we don't learn it now, we may not get another chance. Yeah, I think, again, this is, this is a long game, though, and I think someone with reduced lung function and established bronchiectasis who starts a modulator now, I think is going to be very different from someone who starts at a young age and really maintains, maintains lung structure and lung function over time. And I think those two people are going to look very different in terms of their microbiome response to the modulators. Yeah, even access to samples has become challenging, which is fantastic because patients are not producing mucus and sputum like they had in the past. And now we simply can't get samples, which is a perfect example of how we have to kind of adapt our approaches to better understand the progression of the lung microbiome in these patients as these new treatments seem to have really, really strong positive effects, at least so far. I'd like to thank both of you for joining me today. I think this was a really, really interesting discussion of a really important topic, and I appreciate your time. Thanks a lot for having me. Thank you. Thank you for listening to this episode of Breathe Easy Pediatrics. I hope you enjoyed the discussion of the microbiome and cystic fibrosis. I left this discussion with a much better understanding of both the microbiome and CF and how research in this field has the opportunity to improve clinical practice. Just in case anyone is curious, the paper on using the microbiome as a predictor of astreonam response is titled The Effects of Inhaled Astreonam on the Cystic Fibrosis Lung Microbiome. It was published in the journal Microbiome in 2017, and the lead author is Hirali, H-E-I-R-A-L-I. If you are interested to hear more on Dr. Quinn's work in the future, you can follow him on Twitter under the handle 
at Quinn Labs, Quinn underscore Labs. If you have questions or comments on the podcast, I can be found on Twitter at MSU Peds Palm, or feel free to send them to at ATS Peds. If you enjoyed this podcast, please subscribe on whatever your favorite podcast app is. We're always looking for new or interesting ideas or guests for podcasts, so please reach out and thank you for listening. I can always just cut that part out.